welcome to Come Back When the Leaves Are Green. This is the podcast which accompanies Orthopaedic Research UK's new one-day intensive course in paediatric orthopaedics. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Dubai, and my friend and colleague Michaelis Kokonakis is joining us from London, as usual. Michaelis, this is a podcast where we're going into the realms of spinal surgery. Um, how do you feel about that? Spine was never my thing, so um, I'm looking forward to hearing everything from uh, our honoured guest tonight. Yes, the honoured guest. So the honoured guest, he's um, a typical spinal surgeon, you know, shy, retiring, you know, the, you know, the kind of character. I think that describes him very well. Welcome to Rex Michael. Rex is a colleague and a friend. He is currently working at the Neurospinal Hospital in Dubai. Uh, he has expertise in number of spinal conditions, a particular interest in scoliosis. And, and here's the thing, this is why you should listen to him especially closely. He has experience as an FRCS examiner. Rex, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. Uh, thank you very much, Gavin, for giving me this uh, opportunity. And I look forward to sharing some words of wisdom, I hope. Sure. Well, let's let's see where we go. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your experience as an examiner. I think you, you said you've been an examiner for about five years now. Is that right? Yeah. So I started my uh, examiner candidate exam, if you like, where you're like a trainee examiner in 2016, November. And then till about 2020, when COVID hit, I did uh, two exams a year. So I've traveled a uh, fair bit around the UK visiting various centers where we had the exams and uh, Ireland as well. The, the experience is very good. It's always a mixed experience and there are uh, very enjoyable parts of the exam. There are parts of the exams which are stressful as much for the examiner as it is for the candidates. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and we, we really want to pick your brains really with both hats on, both as an examiner and, and as a spinal surgeon. But I guess paediatric spinal conditions is, is something that would be considered fair game in the exam, would you say? What, what sort of paediatric spinal conditions do you think people ought to have a working knowledge of when they're preparing for the exam? So the, the classic one is scoliosis. Patients with scoliosis are easy to bring to the exam. There are lots of them about and in fact uh, one of my short cases in the exam and I was a candidate was a young lady with an adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. So I do not think that you can go to an exam without a good working knowledge of both the theoretical basis of scoliosis uh, as well as the examination of a patient with scoliosis. So it's very important to give an impression that you are very familiar with how you would assess a patient and the basic principles of its management. Okay, so let's dive in there. Then. So imagine you've got a patient with scoliosis, let's say they're uh, uh, in their teens, and the examiner invites you to assess this patient. So can you give us a few tips on the sort of things that are going to make the examiner think you know what you're talking about when you assess a patient like this? Because a lot of people doing this course will not have had experience on a paediatric spinal deformity unit. They're quite rare, right? So there are two types of patients that you may have, and it depends on how fortunate you are. So you will have a very simple, straightforward adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. They tend to be mostly uh, girls and they are otherwise completely normal. So it is very important that you latch on to the problem and then formulate a plan very quickly as to how you're going to deal with this. And this also varies depending on whether it's a short case or an intermediate case because you then need to plan your time uh, accordingly. So. 
We will go with the first scenario where it's a simple, straightforward case. Uh, as with all spine, lower limb examination, you want to get them walking just to comment on the gait. You know, as, as a consultant, there are a few things that you latch on to very quickly uh, because you want to do an examination and not miss the important things. So I would generally go and look at the leg lengths because there's, you know, there are some impacts and effect of this on how you would further assess and manage the scoliosis. Even as simple a thing as if there's a significant leg length discrepancy, you would want to ask for x-rays with the pelvis level rather than with the tilted pelvis. So that's very simple. I then get the patients to do the Adams forward bend test and it's helpful if you have a scoliometer. In the exam you can say, well, I would like to have a scoliometer. But you are able to assess approximately what the ATI is, which is the apical trunk inclination. Most of the examiners would say, well, we don't have a scoliometer. What do you think it is? And if it's a right thoracic, the usual classic one, you say, well, ATI, right thoracic is 15 degrees, I think. And if there's a double curve, you can say, well, there's also an ATI lumbar of this many degrees. And from there, if you're really bright, you'll say, well, the ATI in the lumbar is higher than the thoracic. So this may actually be a primary lumbar curve with a compensatory thoracic curve. All right. So these are things which makes one think, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Then from an examination point of view, you quickly want to see if there are any skin markers because you want to differentiate a primary from a, or idiopathic from a secondary scoliosis. The usual cafeole spots, axillary freckles, anything out of the ordinary you want to pick up. You can look at the face and say normal facies, which also is an important thing. After that, you want to do the Baton score. That's very important. Again, for the same reason, you know, do they have neurofibromatosis or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? It can be subtle. And it tells the examiner that you know what the Baton score is and its relevance. Once you're sort of gone through this basic, you go on to a slightly more scoliosis-specific assessment. Can I just ask you one thing before that, which I'm sure is going through most candidates' minds, is what, what sort of state of undress or otherwise are these patients in and what should a candidate ask for? I mean, particularly if we're talking about adolescence in an exam, this, this is obviously a, a sensitive topic. So how are patients prepared for the exam? So the basic premise from a candidate's point of view is you want them stripped down completely. And it's easy if it's a boy, if it's a girl, we'll say, well, she's going to leave her top on or whatever. So it's, you always want to ask, you know, I would like to examine the patient completely exposed. And then the examiners will always direct. They can say, if it's a boy, they'll say, yeah, take your top off. And most of them will do that. We've already spoken to them about it. And if it's a young lady, we might say, no, leave the top on. And then you'd be expected to ask, do you have any patches here and there? You know, those sort of things. Just to say you're thinking about it. So from a scoliosis specific, again, sticking with the classic right thoracic curve, we normally expect that the right shoulder is elevated. So if you see a significant scapular prominence on the right side and the right shoulder is not elevated, then you have to say, well, I wonder if there's a double curve with the upper thoracic curve, which is compensating for the shoulder balance. And also, again, the, the classic single curve will produce a trunk shift. So there may be a trunk shift to the left or a trunk shift to the right, depending on what it is. And the traditional way is to look at the plumb line from the C7 to see where it falls in the natal cleft. Again, just saying that I would do this 
is usually enough. We don't usually bring a plumb line to the exam. I've not seen one yet. Other than that, you look for the other typical rotation parameters. So usually they have a prominent left costal margin because the ribs are rotated to the right. So you then go on to a neurological examination because we always assume that a scoliosis is secondary unless proved otherwise. So from the history, you would have got some pointers. I know we've not spoken about the history yet. And from the examination, the Baton score, the skin markers, and the normal neurological exam will tell you that, okay, there's an idiopathic scoliosis rather than a secondary one. So Rex, I get the feeling that one of your tips to all candidates will be to talk through, even if they don't, even if they don't do stuff, especially now with the COVID, I think the, the exam, especially the clinicals might be affected, but to, to talk and, and, and share their thoughts with the examiner, how important it is when, when it comes to this, how fast they talk, how slow they are, you know, how important it is for you and what do you think the ideal vibe or the ideal clinical would be in terms of the rhythm or in terms of how the, the pace of somebody talking and then how honest they should be, you know, should they say, this is what I've seen my spinal surgeon doing. This is what I know we should be doing, but I've never seen it in the clinic. So I, that's an interesting question. So how fast you speak, I think to an extent depends on the case, of course. And if we're just sticking to a scoliosis, whether it's a short or an intermediate case. So if it's an intermediate case, you get five minutes for questioning the patients, five minutes for examining, and then five minutes to be questioned and shown investigation. So you are a little bit more relaxed, you have time, you can think. But in uh, the short case, you have to not necessarily speak fast, but you have to progress. So don't beat around the bush. If you sh- are shown a patient with a right thoracic scoliosis, say there's a right thoracic scoliosis, what would you do? Well, I will examine the patient thoroughly for Baton score, markers, neurology. What are you going to do next? I'll get x-rays. So usually they, at this time we bring the x-rays, you then describe the x-rays. Right thoracic, I'll assess the severity by measuring the core angle. How do you measure the core angle? Well, upper end plate of the upper vertebrae, lower end plate of the lower vertebrae, perpendiculars, and to grade it into mild, moderate, severe. And my management will be based on the patient's development stage, symptoms, severity of the scoliosis. And that you know, in five minutes, you've got a pass mark there. If they then say, well, how would you decide whether to brace a patient or not? And you can quote the BRACED trial, there's a bracing in adolescent diabetic scoliosis trial. And you can sort of explain a summary of that paper. You'll say, well, this patient is risk grade zero, prepubertal, and a curve less than 40 degrees. So I would expect them to get a good result from bracing. You've got a seven or an eight in that short case. Now in a long case, now, I know you spoke about the COVID and the current situation. I've spoken to a few candidates who've done the exams recently and also from the examiner communication that I received. I think there are no patients. There have not been patients in the clinical exam for a few sittings now. So the candidates are in a position where they will have to articulate what they're going to do. And if they say, well, I would do this test, I think one of the examiners is offered as a model patient. And, you know, say I do the Adam's forward bend test. Okay, this is a patient, shows how you do it. So you're then demonstrating it on an examiner, which uh, again introduces a slightly different level of stress, I assume, uh, in the exam. But I think it's very important that you get into the role play and say, okay, this is a patient, 
forget about who it is or what. This is how I would do it, as I always do in my clinic. I think that's the impression you want to give. Can I just ask specifically about braces? I don't deal with spine, uh, but in the exam situation, when somebody is asking about management of scoliosis, do brace treatment have, have always to be mentioned? And what are the sort of the, the rough guidelines of, of management? Yeah, so currently, again, sticking to the adolescent idiopathic population, what you would say is curves under 20 degrees we observe. We see them every six months, we do x-rays or clinical assessment, whatever you want to do. Curves more than 20 degrees, you would seriously have to consider bracing because, again, from the uh, available literature now, mainly based on the braced trial, we know that bracing has a 70% success rate in controlling the curve less than 50 degrees at maturity. This is a takeaway from this and it also sort of gives a threshold for surgery as a 50 degree curb angle. So if you then say, I will look at the Scoliosis Research Society criteria, which is what was used in the BRACE trial, to assess how suitable a patient is for bracing. And the perfect candidate, as I said, is someone who is pre-menarchal or pre-pubertal in a boy. And there are ways of assessing this from the Tanner scale, the RISA grade, and various other things that people have described. And then the corp angle is less than 40 degrees and the patient is compliant, which they have used as 18 hours of brace wear, then you would expect a 70% success rate. So that when the patient reaches skeletal maturity, the curve is less than 50 degrees, in which case they don't need surgery. Curves more than 50 degrees, we have to get into a discussion about surgical treatment. So on that subject of surgical treatment, it's a highly specialized area of surgery. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how much detail you expect a candidate to know. And actually, we discussed this before we hit the record button. And I was very interested in what you told us, which was that it depends very much on who's examining. And I had naturally assumed that a spinal case would be examined by somebody like yourself who has expertise in it. But you were explaining to me that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, so uh, I think in keeping with the ethos that we're looking for a candidate who would be safe as a day one consultant. This is what is hammered into the examiners so that it gives us some perspective of how we assess a candidate. So I wouldn't be examining somebody as I would if he was going to join our team as a consultant spine surgeon. For example, from my practice in Sheffield, I would want someone that I would trust to be able to look after a patient who comes out of hours when there's not an on-call spinal surgeon available, for example. Uh, and not harm them in any way. So that requires a degree of knowledge about spine surgery and any acute spine and orthopedic issue, which is what we're trying to test. But at the same time, you also want to be sure that they have been exposed to the, the, the breadth of orthopedic surgery in the training program. And you would expect that a trainee has spent at least six months in a department with some significant spinal surgical involvement. So going to the pre-op assessment, a lot of it is standard throughout orthopedics, but there are some specifics. So for example, we have a pre-operative assessment team, which includes nurse specialists, pediatric anesthetists, and physiotherapists, so that they see the patient, assess the patient, explain a lot of the things that they would expect during their surgery, perioperative period and recovery, which takes a bit of stress away from the surgeons, obviously. 
but I would expect the candidate to say, okay, we've decided that this patient needs surgery. We give them as much information as possible about the surgery. We give them sources of information like the British Scoliosis Society website and other charities. We then want to make sure that they are fit for surgery. So you look at their nutrition, you look at the cardiac status, you look at the respiratory status. And then once they are fit for surgery, we explain to them again in detail about the surgical technique and the risks versus benefits. So this is a process which takes maybe two or three visits to the hospital. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So how much would you expect candidates to know about things like screw placement configurations of, of metalwork? Or would you just expect people to understand that there are different approaches, you know, anterior approaches, posterior approaches, fusions, and and sometimes there are instrumented techniques where you don't do a fusion? I mean, mostly it seems that it's the principles that are more important than the fine detail for this exam. Would you agree with that, that for this kind of... That is absolutely correct. Uh, I think at the moment, I would expect a candidate to get a good pass to have a working knowledge of the linkage classification. So apart from the pre-assessment process, we're just now coming into the planning for surgery. And we base that on x-rays and bending x-rays. So the linkage classification has six curve types and they're based upon whether a curve is structural or non-structural. With the sort of understanding that the structural curves need to be treated, the non-structural curves may not need to be treated. Obviously, it's not as simple as that, but that's a basic principle. So if you say, well, I will get some x-rays of the patient, whole spine, standard scoliosis views with bending to plan my surgery, and I will use the Lenke classification to decide what levels of surgical fusion we would do, that's a seven. If you then say, well, this patient has a type 5 curve, which is a predominantly lumbar curve, and there's a lot of discussion whether this should be treated anteriorly or posteriorly, with recent literature suggesting that the results are more or less the same, then again you're on a 7 or an 8. Now, I might say, well, what if this patient was 8 years old? Then I would expect them to say, well, they're still growing, and I would think seriously about how much height you know, is remaining or how much growth of the trunk is remaining. Well, how would you fix that? I mean, how would you find that out? Well, I would look at a growth chart. I would chart this, see where the patient is in terms of the percentile. And if they have a lot of growth remaining, then I would seriously consider a growing system of which I'm aware of X, Y, Z. It may be the magnetic rods. It may be the conventional growing system. It may be the more newer techniques that are coming up. But I wouldn't expect them to tell me about these newer techniques. I think that might be not required. But I think this degree of understanding would give them a seven easily. Thanks for that guidance, Rex. I mean, we've spent most of the time talking about spinal deformity and scoliosis in particular, I guess, because that is one of the commonest things that you see. And and those kind of patients would be great for exams. Can you give us your idea of what other pediatric spinal conditions candidates should know about? Not necessarily to assess patients, but maybe for viva situations. I'm guessing spondylolysis, spondylolisthesis would be in there. Yeah, so again, just one thing, because it's just something that I saw one candidate do. Just think for a second or a few seconds before you say anything in the clinical scenario. So I had one patient with a scoliosis uh, in a short case, and the candidate came in and said, there's winging of the scapula. And even though we gave some subtle hints to say, you know, do you want to do a forward bend test? They just would not pick up any of the hints. They went for the wall test and... So if the examiners are giving you any tips, 
just reconsider and just think. So that's just an aside. Um, so the interesting thing about the virus is that the cases obviously are presented and submitted by the examiners. And by nature, examiners want to present interesting, unique cases. So the scenario in the viva is you may be shown complicated x-ray or a complicated scenario. Uh, it's very important to just take a step back and say, right, okay, so this looks like completely overwhelming, but I'm going to fix on one thing. So if, for example, the typical is a multiple epiphyseal dysplasia, you're shown a whole spine x-ray, the shoulders are looking unusual, the hips are looking unusual, there's a scoliosis. What I would recommend in this is to fix on something. And if it's a pediatric viva, you can say, well, I'm going to focus on the spine, which shows. And if we don't want you to talk about the spine, I'll say, well, actually, what do you think about the hips? And then, you know, just follow the cues, stick to the hips, forget about everything else and describe what you see. So in terms of conditions that you may see in this type of a viva situation, uh, if we start, you can see a congenital scoliosis. We love to show those x-rays and then it goes on to, well, what do you think this is, what's going to happen to this patient? Is it going to be rapidly progressive? How do you know whether it will be rapidly progressive? And we're basically testing your knowledge of the classification systems. You know, is this a hemivertebrae? Is there a contralateral unsegmented bar, which you know will progress rapidly? And then, okay, so what classification do you know? And then you're, you're getting to a six if you know the winter classification or the uh, CT classification that's uh, a little bit more recent. I wouldn't say you have to tell me the name of the classification system, but if you say, well, there's recently a classification based on CT scans, which gives us more of a surgical planning than the previous classification, which was failure of formation, failure of segmentation uh, and combined patterns. And then you come on to the whole spectrum of pathology. So you could get traumatic conditions. You can have children who've had a traumatic fracture. It may be a peg fracture. And you say, well, is this an os odontoidium or is this actually a fracture? So those are the things to consider. The spondylolysis, spondylolysthesis, again, classic radiological uh, pictures you'll see in a viva. And you would be expected to say, well, I'll get oblique x-rays. And I see I'm looking for the Scotty dog. The ears are this, the, the neck is this. So those sort of things will start getting you points. Now, if you see a dysplastic spondylolysthesis, so that's something to differentiate. So you, you should say this is a lytic or isthmic type of spondylolysthesis where the questioning will go in a different path to a dysplastic spondylolysthesis, where the questioning may go towards, well, what angles will you measure? How are you going to say the risk of progression to the parents? Going on to other conditions, always think infection. If you're shown an MRI of a child, first thing you should think, is this an infection? Because it can be quite subtle. And we know that spinal infection in children is always a delayed diagnosis. There's anywhere from a month to two, three months delay to diagnosis because of the non-specific nature of the complaints. Other than that, uh, you will always have to think about syndromic scoliosis, any mucopolysaccharidosis, you know, anything with classic features. Uh, is there a tumor? Again, spinal tumors are also fair game for the exams. Uh, especially the things like eosinophilic granuloma, uh, vertebra plana, 
So the differential diagnosis comes into uh, the picture. So in the viva situation, all of these things have been uh, asked regularly. And again, as I said, the first thing I would think is have a good look, do a good assessment and then start. And the examiners now, you know, we are constantly told not to harass the candidates and to be helpful. So if you are going down a path that is not correct or that is not what we want to assess, then we will give you directions and be very receptive of that. I think you've touched a very, um, a very important uh, topic, uh, Rex. I think every every candidate should uh, should remember the every examiner and not the examiners are not men. They're not men. They're there to help you. That they want you to pass. And then very important is like you said, you know, follow the clues because there there are going to be clues there. And um, I always say try to read the examiner and see how um, you know what is he trying to tell you. We're down to the last. A couple of minutes, really. We wanted to try and keep it to 30 minutes, no more. So I just wanted to ask one more thing of you, and that is about neuromuscular scoliosis. I guess these are cases which are less likely to come as patients that you would be asked to examine, but you might be asked it in a, in a viva situation, for example. Can you give us a quick rundown on the key points to discuss if you're dealing with a neuromuscular spinal deformity? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I think uh, it's very much a fair game in the viva situation. There are lots of patients, you can get lots of x-rays and clinical pictures. What you'd be expected is to form an assessment very quickly of whatever images you're shown and the scenario you're given to say, well, I think there's a neuromuscular scoliosis or it's a syndromic scoliosis if it's uh, obvious. And the most common is cerebral palsy, of course. And uh, so what you would be expected to do would be to describe the x-rays if that was the case. You would uh, be expected to comment on the carb angle. Whether, you, know, you, you still might have a congenital element to it. So make sure you look at it and say, well, I do not see any segmentation abnormalities. Then you go on to looking at the pelvis because there's a very important part of the neuromuscular assessment. Most of the patients will have pelvic obliquity because the curve is a long C-shaped curve rather than the S-shaped uh, or the compensatory pattern seen in the idiopathic uh, patients. So then you will see that the pelvis is uh, oblique or pelvic obliquity and then you need to pay some attention to the hips because some patients interestingly may never have met a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So you will have to pick this up to say are the hips in place, is there any pain coming from the hips? Are they dislocated? And of course, you will need to say, I would refer this patient for an opinion from my pediatric orthopedic colleague. I say, well, what do you think they will do? I will be like, well, if they're dislocated, we need to have a detailed discussion about whether the hips need to be put back in place, what are the pros and cons, and then the sequence. This is a subject of increasing discussion because previously, if the spinal surgeon saw the patient first, we'd fix the spine, forget about the hips. If the pediatric orthopedic surgeon sees the patient first, they do all the osteotomies, containment, uh, you name it, and then worry about the spine. Now, the reason this is of interest is that if, for example, the hips are operated on first and then we do the spine, it can affect the outcome of the hip surgery because of what we do to the pelvis when we fix the spine. So I think increasingly... The key issue is to say there will be a discussion, both with the pediatric orthopedic surgeon and with the family. And then we would want to level the pelvis so we know what the hips are doing before we do anything to the hips. 
And there has been certainly one patient in my experience where the hips were very painful and after a lot of discussion we decided, okay, get the hips sorted first, then we'll do the spine surgery. So the, the main point is a discussion and then the, the principles. And also most of the candidates will know that there's a lot of interest now in the pelvic parameters before you look at a hip replacement. Um, Michaelis, you, you deal with a lot of patients with dual pathology here, spinal and, and neuromuscular hip pathology. And anything to add to Rex's comments? Well, I think Rex is so right. This is a very controversial subject and it's very hot now. If you go to meetings, you go to spinal, pediatric orthopedic meetings, there's a lot of papers now. I think it, it's good to uh, to say your own experience. I can tell you in my hospital, when I go to speak to the spinal surgeon, he always says, do the hips first and then you know but just that you know that's what we do you know in our trust but it's not the right thing and um, you have just to mention in the exam that it is controversial i think that's that's what rex is suggesting i would say one last question rex what about when you have a neuromuscular scoliosis do you prefer or is it recommended to go and stabilize the pelvis or not so the simple answer to that is whether the patient is ambulant or not uh, so obviously you know that neuromuscular patients present a huge spectrum. And I've seen patients that I would struggle to pick up as a neuromuscular patient, for want of a better term, and others where you can spot them from, from the end of the corridor. So it very much depends on that. So the philosophy in the scoliosis community is that if it is an ambulant patient, and interestingly, the ambulant patients will have uh, the type 2 curve, which has a compensatory curve. They normally don't have the long C-shaped curve with the pelvis as part of the curve. I think the ambulant patients, I would try and avoid fixing to the pelvis because they do rely a lot on the spinal pelvic movement for ambulation. But again, it's, it's variable. It depends on what exactly the neuromuscular issue is uh, before we consider fixation to the pelvis versus not. Now, as a spine surgeon, we like to keep the fusion as short as possible. But at the same time, we need to do enough so that we are not just having to revise it too much. Gentlemen, I think this might be a good time to, to draw this to a close on an area of complete controversy. Uh, it's it's lo <laughs> lovely to see that. Listen, gentlemen, both, thank you very much indeed for your contributions. It's uh, We could go on all night about this, but we, we have to draw it to a close at some point. So to the people listening in, I hope you find some useful tips there, both in terms of dealing with paediatric spinal conditions and for exam technique as a whole. So thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to having your company on another podcast in this series. Goodbye for now.